Soon I will be done with the trouble of the world. I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. We started off with one of Sinead O'Connor's final recordings. That's her singing Mahalia Jackson's Trouble of the World. Sinead O'Connor died this week at the too young age of 56, and this episode is dedicated to her memory. I'll be talking with one of the many artists she inspired, Shirley Manson of Garbage. And we'll also hear from David Wilde, who interviewed Sinead for a Rolling Stone cover story in 1991. Sinead O'Connor arrived to fame at age 21 with an unbelievably brutal childhood just behind her. Her mother was mentally ill and frightfully abusive. O'Connor spent time in a sort of reform school-like group home in her teens where she got her first guitar lessons. She was never shy about her influences. She loved Bob Dylan, perhaps most of all. She said his song, Gotta Serve Somebody, defined the type of music she wanted to make and that the most famous protest of her career, ripping up the Pope's picture on Saturday Night Live, would have never have happened without the message of that song. She loved Van Morrison, Kate Bush, which you can definitely hear in her more ethereal and synthy moments, even Barbara Streisand. She loved Bob Marley and had a deep affinity for reggae and Rastafarianism in general. She was a huge and really an early supporter of hip-hop. MC Light appeared on a remix of the song Put Your Hands On Me all the way back in 1988. I like you, I know you can tell, and you like me just as well. You want to make love, but I want you to touch me. But Sinead O'Connor's own influence on music became just as broad. You can really, really hear her voice in the hits of Alanis Morissette in particular. O'Connor's debut album, 1987's The Lion and the Cobra, has really aged incredibly well and really does feel like a 90s album, three years early. And I really recommend, by the way, her own memoir, Rememberings, which is really evocative and often much funnier than you might expect as well as Nothing Compares, the documentary about her that just came out last year. It's still streaming via Showtime. And Sinead's whole catalog is worth delving into. I do not want what I haven't got from 1990, deserved its success, and it's much more wrenching and personal album than you may remember. But she went on to make a whole lot of other great music in a variety of styles. But for now, let's hear my conversation with Shirley Manson of Garbage. I'm only happy when it rains. It really has shaken me. I must admit, it was, I did not find it unexpected. In fact, quite the opposite. I've been waiting for this for some time now, to be honest. I understood what crisis she was in, and I was very concerned. And my biggest fear has come true. And But I can't say I'm surprised. I know that she struggled with a bipolar disorder, and, and I think the ultimate calamity in her life was of course the death the suicide of her son i think that it signed her own death warrant right there it's a dark story you know it's there's no way of looking at it in a in a particularly positive light this morning but i'm sure you know as time passes we'll we'll feel differently and process this differently but this morning it feels very sad to me I've been seeing you talk about Sinead for many years. I know she was very important to you artistically. What was your first encounter with her and her music? It was reading the music papers in Britain, the Sounds Melody Maker NME. I started tracking her. That sounds really sinister. But uh, <laughs> I started tracking her career through those papers and became quite obsessed. And then I saw her perform Mandinka on Top of the Pops and that was it. I was just completely in love. 
and have never wavered. She's not, She's been an artist that has stuck with me for decades and has never let me down. I've never felt disappointed by her. I've never felt embarrassed. I've always felt so aligned with her thinking. You were a fan from Lion and the Cobra, and it's so fierce. It's such a great album. What did you respond to? First and foremost, lest we forget, it was that spectacular voice, which is unparalleled. She truly is a great, she's one of the greats, a great vocalist. And to my mind, she's up there with a Nina Simone and a Billie Holiday. She's just got something that is impossible to emulate. She's just the, a one-off. Nobody can touch her vocal range or her expression. And so first and foremost, it was her voice. I loved how she used a falsetto in the midst of rageful, I wouldn't say screaming, but in enraged sounding vocals. She could just flip from a, a falsetto angel, the sound of an angel, and then straight into this super fierce, hardcore almost punk rock and sound legitimate in any of these moods. And I just, yeah, I was besotted with her voice. It helped that she looked like an angel. She looked so beautiful. And I hate talking about female artists regarding the way they looked, but she was so extraordinary Mm. looking and coupled with this incredible voice and unbelievably brilliant lyrics. Yeah, I was just mesmerized. And when she did have uh, pop success with the next album, was there any part of you that saw that as a sellout or anything like that? Or were you still completely on board? I was completely on board. I loved that record, that whole album. I, I fucking loved that record. And so <laughs> when she hit the big time with Nothing Compares to You, I was proud. I And I thought, here's this person I've admired for so long is finally getting recognized by everybody for the genius that she is. I really do believe she was a genius. Her whole presentation, the shaved head, the look was so different from what anyone, any other woman was kind of putting out to the world at that time. The thing was that what is weird for me, and I think why I was so fascinated with her was she was my age. Like we were the same age. And when you see your, you see someone that you really relate to the way she expressed herself, the way she conducted herself and the way she styled herself felt very much like the people that I was hanging out with at home. In Edinburgh, like she, she looked like my crowd. So again, she just looked like my kind of people. I wasn't shocked that she had shaved her head or anything like that. I know people make a big deal about that. To me, that was just, I got that. That spoke to me. I understood that. I too had shaved my head at that age. And so uh. it didn't seem like a big deal. I just thought she looked cool as fuck. You know what I mean? I love that she was this beauty, like stunningly, like an Audrey Hepburn kind of beauty, and then coupled it with super sort of androgynous clothing. And to me, that was punk rock. I love that. It was very anti the traditional male gaze, and she wasn't playing the role of the smiling, supplicating woman. She was fierce. And that was really unusual when she emerged out of those late 80s where the women were very passive, really, and definitely just presenting to please. And she was doing the complete opposite. In America, her quote-unquote scandals, which often just amounted to her speaking her mind, became part of her narrative so fast at that time. She was booed at Madison Square Garden after the Saturday Night Live thing. And that was where... She said that the record labels thought that wrecked her career. She said that 
actually only just wrecked the record executive's career. It allowed her to do what she wanted. How did you see all that? First of all, we cannot underestimate the power of what she did. Again, female artists were expected to be seen and not heard. And for a female artist to have the confidence and the audacity to speak up on a subject as serious, as terrifying and as potent as the church and and pedophilia is astounding. It's astoundingly brave. And she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew it wasn't going to be a popular move. I think she was shaken by the response to it, which was really over the top. Let's yeah. face it, she's just, she was a, sing- a popular singer on TV who tore up a photograph of the Pope. Hardly worthy of annihilation, but the, it, the response was so over the top. I don't think she probably expected that, but in retrospect, I think she realised what she had done was so brave and she was so proud of herself and she was relieved of to be a perfect pop star. It was not something I believe that she ever really wanted in her life. I don't think she saw herself in that role at all. And in retrospect, as she says in the documentary, it's the best thing I ever did. She's proud of herself, as she fucking rightly should be. It's really moving what she did. She sacrificed herself, basically, if we're going to get into the biblical terms here. She sacrificed herself. It's, It's a beautiful statement, but of course it was not received that way. She made... A lot of great music, so much great music after that. She was an incredible, can we just talk about how inc- what an incredible musician she was? Like, astounding musician. And again, because she's a female artist, it doesn't get talked about very much. It's always talked about the scandal or how beautiful she looked. And occasionally they'll talk about her voice. But she was a fucking monster musician. She was astounding. And she made it look so easy and effortless. I don't think she's made a bad record in her life. I doubt she's recorded a poor song in her life. Everything was of exceptional quality. It varied in its style a lot of the time, which turned people on and off. But she took great pride in her work. And you can hear that on the records. What is astounding to me and was a source of great frustration and indignance for me. We had this incredible artist. After Amy Winehouse died, so much was made of Amy and her death, rightly so, I hasten to add. But here we had Sinead O'Connor alive. And yes, she was struggling, but she was still a phenomenal artist. And yet she was ridiculed in the press. She was vilified in the press and rarely got the kind of coverage that an artist of her caliber deserved. And this is for the last 15 years, she just didn't garner the kind of musical respect that she deserves. And it makes me so insane that there's been this outpouring of grief at her death, which again is so right and as it should be. And yet she could have done with a lot of that support while she was alive. And I just don't understand this phenomenon that when artists die, we all of a sudden revere them again and and yet we forget about them whilst they're alive because they're not young and beautiful anymore women female artists just get thrown to the side and don't aren't treated with the reverence they deserve and i it particularly with Sinead, it drove me insane hmm. i just didn't understand how she could be facing bankruptcy because she was struggling so much in an industry that's so unforgiving and designed for the sort of young appeasing staged trained pop star and instead we had this true great that we just let die on a vine and it's madness yeah you said this disgusting world broke her and kept on breaking her 
were you talking essentially about the record industry or going even deeper than that? Yeah, I'd go even further back from that. Like her youth was very cruel. When you're betrayed by your mother, like I, yes. I have to be careful because I'm going to burst into tears and I don't want to do that. But when you are betrayed by your mother at an early age, I don't see really how you can recover from that. Because who on earth will you ever trust? Who will you ever feel safe with? And how do you heal that level of hurt? I really don't know. And it speaks to Sinead O'Connor's incredible tenacity and power as a human being that she managed to muscle on through despite an absolutely terrifying childhood. And what is beautiful, and I don't know if you've read her beautiful memoir. It's so good, yeah. It's so good. And it's so funny. It's so full of humor. And she's so forgiving. And so she's not bitter at all. It's she's this divine person who's able to, she's so raw and empathetic that she's able to forgive. And it's really is divine, it, I think. And I can't encourage people enough to read her memoir. It, like a lot of the time I'll read memoirs and I'll come away feeling like they come across as a bit of a dick. <laughs> With her, you read that book and you love her even more. Such a thing is possible. You're like, you are one of the most incredible women of modern times. You're just astounding. Yeah, she did herself proud with that book, I think. It just reminds you of how much generational trauma was a factor in the bad parts of her life. The Catholic Church is still very powerful in Ireland. And having been brought up in the church myself, I really related to that part of her in many ways. Any religious, any organized religious environment is difficult to navigate for anybody. It's very judgmental when there are so many rules and it's very patriarchal. And then her book talks about this ancestral kind of suffering of the Irish people under the weight and the power of the Catholic Church, particularly back then. It, the power has been diffused somewhat over the last couple of decades. But when she was growing up, the church was everything in Ireland and it was still a struggling economy and that affects the people. Yeah, she did not have it easy. And the thing that is so beautiful about Sinead is she could only have come from Ireland. Everything about her as an artist, her storytelling, the folk telling, the folk music of Ireland, the history of Ireland, the mystical nature of Ireland, it's all in her music, it's all in her voice, it's all in her. She is absolutely Ireland's child. And that's unusual. I can't think of another female artist who comes and embodies Ireland like that. Yeah, I always saw her as akin to Van Morrison in her way. That same Irish soul thing is very much in her. Yeah, yeah and Bono has it too, you know. Um, and, that's true. And Dolores from the Cranberries, she had some of that too. But there's something very Irish-specific which makes her so unique. And there's nobody like her. There never will be anybody like her again. Like that, that was it. We got the chance of a goddess walking on Earth, and boy, did we fuck it up. Did you ever meet her? I didn't. And I had a beautiful exchange with Cap Sean Marshall from Cat Power last night. And we were just talking about how sad we were about Sinead's death. And Sean said a beautiful thing, which was, I always thought I was going to meet her. I always wished we we were friends and I felt exactly the same way. There was just that connection. Sean is another one with a God-given voice with an incredible talent and a fragile personality. But I think all of us women who are outspoken and move through the world, move through a patriarchal society, trying to do things our way really saw in Sinead a figurehead, a flag bearer. And to have lost that it feels devastating. 
I feel devastated. When you look at the person who is that figurehead and then you see what sort of happened to her and how the industry and the world treated her. Yeah, it's, it's just another example of what the world does to powerful women. I know I'm sounding a bit extreme, but I love talking in extremities because no. it's so much more interesting and poetic. <laughs> I feel like the world destroyed Sinead O'Connor. She was so delicate. Yes, she was courageous and brave and fierce and, and powerful, but she was also really unbelievably fragile and sensitive. And the world just tossed her around and defiled her. And now we've lost somebody that, again, we'll not see the likes of, not in my lifetime. And that is, it's so sad because she so often begged for help. She was made fun of by the tabloids for a variety of occurrences in, in her later life. They vilified her for the way she looked. What the fuck is that? What business is it of anybody's how Sinead O'Connor chooses to look? And it was almost like, I was talking about this with my husband yesterday, it was almost like people didn't want to look at her. She was so perfect when she first emerged and mm -hmm. everyone fell in love with her. And then she didn't behave the way that the world wanted her to behave. And everyone turned away. And when they looked back, she had aged and people couldn't stomach it and they didn't want to stomach it and so they rejected her entirely because she hadn't gone and fixed herself in a Beverly Hills salon like she was raw and real and honest and in some ways was a mirror to who we all are a lot of society and the media just couldn't handle that it was too much they wanted her to be back in a pretty box really looking cute with her little shaved head and her little pixie face and singing right. an incredible love song but she's right. so much more than that. I think one of your favorite songs you said is uh, Black Boys on Mopeds, which is a great yeah. song. What are some of your other sort of absolute favorite musical moments by her? I loved her records, her, all her albums, and she took me on these insane journeys. The Lion and the Cobra goes on this insane journey. And is like art rock, really. It's not, it, the, none of the songs necessarily have traditional arrangements. They have these phenomenal melodies, most importantly, but then these amazing sort of mysterious lyrics. I was always like pouring over the record sleeves, reading the lyrics, trying to understand what the fuck was Troy about. And of, of course, I was also obsessed with Greek tragedies and, and myths and legends. And so it really spoke to that sort of Yeats kind of mysticism that is so embedded in Irish sort of culture. And it just really captured my imagination. And yeah, it blew me away. I mean, you do mention Black Boys and Mopeds. That, that song in particular really triggered something in my mind. And it's stuck with me ever since of like how you can protest in a song without it sounding like a protest song, if that makes any sense yeah. at all. It just was so masterfully done that she's talking about something so absolutely abhorrent, and yet she's, it's like a Trojan horse. She brings in this horse, that, that this song, and you don't know what you're listening to at first. You're just hearing these incredible melodies and this phenomenal voice, and then it's the, the penny slowly drops. And it really forces the listener to, to absorb what she's saying. That's masterful. 
it's not like a hit you over the head with a bludgeon kind of thing. It's it's really interesting how she, how she managed to pull that off, and she was able to do that throughout her time. And yeah, as I love I love some of her covers as well. Her Nirvana cover of All Apologies, All Apologies yeah. is exquisite. Should I be All Apologies? And she manages to bring in her own turn on everything. Yeah, as I said, I love all her work. I really do. I love all the folk music that she did later on. I love some of her more pop-directed songs. And the first two albums I was obsessed by. I thought they were perfect albums, perfect records. And then the way she sang. like Again, this her falsetto. Every time I do it, I think of Sinead O'Connor. Like on our first record, the very first song I ever wrote with a band I use a falsetto in it, and that was that was a tribute to Sinead O'Connor. On our last record, there is a falsetto on one of our songs. As I did it, I was channeling her. I was thinking of her. It was a, a tribute to her. Milk was the first track on, on our debut record. I'm waiting, I'm and on No Gods, No Masters, the title track of our last album... I sing a little stanza in falsetto, and that was my tribute to her. And I've probably used a falsetto in every one of our records, but I, I, it doesn't. I, I would have to go back and listen to the records. But she's Susie Sue to me. She's like one of these singers that I always reference. I always think I need to do something different vocally here. I need to like I'm going to pull in some Sinead here. I'm going to bring in the help, and that's what great artists do. They inspire you. And yeah, I really couldn't have loved her more. Did you ever see her live? I did not. No, I was touring. That was the thing. My career was taking off as I got the opportunity to to see her. I was signed to EMI Records with my very first band, Goodbye Mr. McKenzie, when she was breaking up, uh, breaking out, excuse me. And uh, so I was yeah, busy with my own shit and I regret it terribly. I would have loved to have seen her play. I've he- I heard it was just utterly magical. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. With the release of her autobiography and the documentary, there was that sort of reassessment and people saying maybe we were not fair to her. Look at how many things she was right about. She shaved the Public Enemy logo into her head to protest the fact that the rap category wasn't aired on the Grammy. She did so many things. We can now say, oh, she was totally right. She was ahead of her time. There was a bit of that reassessment, but I guess not enough in in your eyes. No, of course not. Not enough in my eyes. But the thing is, she knew she was right. She knew. And all the artists who admire her, we all knew. And... I think she felt some, I, she's very, was very friendly with a um, musician friend that we know and she lived with him for a while and his wife and they got to know her very well. And I think she, she knew she was loved in many regards, but I also think she's really sensitive and it must be painful to be laughed at for decisions that you've taken really seriously. When she identified with the Muslim faith, for a random example, the tabloids in Ireland and in Britain really had a heyday. I don't know how it was here, but everybody really made fun of her. And it was such a 
ignorant response to, albeit a very unusual move. But I'm sure that was humiliating. It's not fun. It doesn't matter how experienced you are as an artist to be made fun of in public, to be ridiculed, to have your photographs laughed at because you're no longer like a plastic version of yourself. It's no fun. It's cruel and unnecessary. And artists are artists for a reason. There's a certain sensitivity that comes with being a person who's willing to step out and perform and reveal themselves and expose themselves and offer themselves up to the public for consumption. That this is particular like thing that comes from a, an alarming sensitivity that is is very raw and real and. I think sometimes people who aren't necessarily that sensitive are perplexed by the responses that they can induce in in a sensitive person. And as you mentioned, she, I think it was in 2007, she revealed that she had bipolar disorder and it obviously continued to be a huge issue for her. And people's treatment of that was not always sympathetic. It was mockery. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what's so, I think those of us who really adored her were so offended by that. Like she was clearly in serious distress. At one point she went missing. I don't know if you ever remember that, but she went missing and people thought it was funny. It wasn't funny. It was somebody in deep distress begging for help. And at this point, as I said earlier, she was facing bankruptcy. She had no money. She was just left to her own devices. This incredible creature who had made hundreds of millions of dollars for these massive corporations were nowhere to be seen. It freaks me out thinking about how much torment she was in her whole life. Yeah, and truly her whole life when you look at really from the beginning. What was incredible about her spirit was she really had an amazing sense of humor by all accounts. Like everybody, like Chrissy Hind was saying yesterday, she was really a riotous to hang around with. And my friend who Sinead had lived with for a year or so had sent me an amazing photograph of her flipping some like flight attendant off who had been trying to discipline her on the plane for (laughs) laughing too loud. And she was just a riotous, fantastical joyous being in many regards too. She wasn't a sad sack who just lay down and had the world gapes over her. She was fighting, I think, by all accounts to the very end with great humour and intelligence and, and, and immense artistry. But it's not a happy ending. There's no burnishing that. It's a, it's a very sad end to a miraculous career and a one-off True Blue original who we will never, ever see. It's particularly now in this in these last couple of decades, our pop stars have become very polite and well-behaved and bland and nice. Everybody's nice and nobody makes a mistake and they're all media trained and it's about as homogenous <laughs> as it gets for the most part, at least in, in the, pop, the white pop world. Thank God there's some incredible like rappers and hip-hop artists and R&B artists who are bringing some amazing needed riotous uh, expression to their work. There's a lot of like very nice behavior and very nice songs and very nice tunes and everything's very nice. But I miss my Sinead. I want that. I want that chaos. I want that. I want that sensitivity. I want that brilliance and that truth. Like this, she spoke truth to power. It's like chilling when I think about it, how strong she was in that regard. And bowed. she sang about abortion, for God's sake, with three babies. She's singing about abortion. A major label at 19 years old and unapologetically so. It's like wild. 
And But as I said, it's always the voice that comes first. Like the messaging was one thing, the activism was one thing, the force and the rebellion was one thing, but above all else were these beautiful melodies sung out of the throat of a dove. Just absolute genius. It is interesting, her outspokenness did preview the 90s. She was she started in the 80s. She did signal that, that the 90s were going to be a time when artists did speak out and that a lot of people yeah. became very famous who maybe who struggled with that fame. It's interesting to the extent to which she previewed all those aspects of the 90s very early in the 90s. I guess that's that was our age group, to be honest, speaking yeah. as a 90s artist in inverted commas, exactly. whatever that fucking means. But yeah, we were all in our late teens in the late 80s and then adults in the 90s. And so yeah, you saw a whole decade of very outspoken women in particular, which was so unusual. It's not been entirely unusual to have some outspoken male artists up until that point. There, aside from Madonna, there were no really outspoken women in music because you couldn't afford to be outspoken. You would get squashed. And then the great thing about the 90s, as you so rightly said, she Sinead heralded in this amazing decade of rebellion, which was, and it was so eclectic as well. That's the, You had all different types of amazing eclectic artists, all having something to say and shifting the culture slowly forward and trying to make change. I really appreciate you doing this. I just saw you guys at uh, Central Park, actually. A great show. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for thinking to cover her. It's, as, as she so rightly is due, full, the full-on coverage of her immense talent and incredible, beautiful soul. Thanks again to Shirley Manson. Next up is David Wilde, a longtime writer for Rolling Stone, who has gone on to write for the Grammys and other TV shows for many years. He also has a really fun interview podcast with Phil Rosenthal called Naked Lunch that you should check out. The weird fact is I tend to be, because of my career or my personality, I tend to have long relationships with a lot of these people. The interesting thing about Sinead is I had this intense period where I interviewed her for a big cover story, where I happened to be standing on the side of the stage for one of the more traumatic moments of her life and witnessed that moment in history. And But amazingly, it says something about her career that after that, and I think we had no problems with one another. I'm actually you know, proud to have interviewed her and met her, but I never talked to her again. And it's mm. usually everyone in the Grammy, because of the Grammys for the last 21 years, almost everyone I ever knew as a journalist I've worked with, at least on that show, if not other shows. But she, by virtue of her singular life, just didn't become part of the gang. She... yeah. She lived on her own terms, I think, very intentionally from the beginning. And I never got a second act with her. And it, it made me sad because you asked me to speak about her. I went and I've been listening to the music and I'm in awe of her talent. In America, at least, her trajectory means that a lot of people don't give her the credit she deserves. I saw a few obits in like small papers and things where it's like, nothing compares to you, singer dies. And it's really? Because, you know, that there's a lot more to the story than that. As great a record as that was, it's it, there was a lot more where that came from. 
she'd even been interviewed in Rolling Stone for the previous album because that was a great a critically acclaimed album a couple years earlier. And there was plenty of work afterwards that was really powerful. But to take you back, she had actually been voted Artist of the Year at that point. The first thing that really struck me rereading this, because I must have read it when it first came out, was this was well before the Pope incident, well before the tearing up the Pope's picture on SNL and the booing at Madison Square Garden, which you alluded to. This was a year before that. But yet, the first thing you were asking her about was controversies. It was at New Jersey's, at the, the then Garden State Arts Center. They used to play the national anthem over the sound system, and she didn't want it played. And that became a huge national story. So maybe just bring us back to the context of Sinead O'Connor somehow already controversial before the things that we now think of as being the most controversial happened. Yeah, she was, what's funny is I had forgotten so much of that. She pissed off the chairman of the board, Frank. Around the same time, Frank was becoming a rock critic. It must have been his sort of cranky, later elder statesman years where he was also a member. He went after George Michael, like for something. And he was telling him like, swing baby. But with Sinead, yeah, it was, I thought his reaction was intense for what what her point of view was. But yeah, she was already controversial from the start. And what's interesting is looking back at that, this was the, she was becoming a pop sensation, but I think she, it was not her natural inclination. She was the exception to every rule in that she was pissing people off right away. She was a, a, a beautiful bull in the china shop of pop culture from the beginning. At that point, I think she just was one of those people not inclined to bullshit even a journalist like Keith Richards sometimes will just actually blurt out the total truth in a way that most <laughs> rock stars don't. We love our rock stars who blurt out the truth, Brian. I know from all the cover stories you've written, you appreciate those truth tellers and bomb throwers. I think that reading your story, the fact that you were sympathetic to her comes through. Was she immediately comfortable talking? Did it take some easing in? Do you remember what that sort of exchange was like? My memory is I met her at Book Soup, which is still like the best independent bookstore in LA. And I think I've made a little, you know how as profile writers, we just look for anything. She bought some sort of tabloidy book about scandals. And so I, I made that sort of the way into the interview. And then, and I think she, my memory is that A, she just was such a striking person in every way. She was, her eyes, very intense, very, just a compelling figure. She was very, not difficult, not mean. The thing I remember the most is we, she had wanted, I think, to go to The Source, which was a health food restaurant that's famous, mm. most famous for in Annie Hall. That's where I think Woody Allen meets Annie and then has the, in the parking lot when they break up, I think gets into an accident. That's what I was most familiar with The Source. But I think she was smoking. She wanted to smoke. So we sat out in the front, which faced Sunset Boulevard, which is then and now a little loud. And my memory is that I was asking questions and recording it on some old-fashioned pre-digital kind of recorder. And I couldn't hear what she was saying completely. I was, she, for a bomb-throwing, sort of truth-telling queen, she was also soft-spoken. So it was like, she would say all these amazing things, but they were very whis whispered, and I'm hearing Sunset Boulevard. So it really was only when I went back to the Sunset Marquee and started transcribing, I was like, wow. It's like, she just had, I was hearing most of it, but not all of it. And there were a few, and, and but 
it was not, it was very pleasant, not difficult. She liked to talk. There was so much to her story. And you would think with all of that, she would all along have been this sort of like austere, difficult character. But oddly, like I just looked up one of her last interviews, maybe her last interview, like on Irish television. And it was with some comedian, Tommy, someone who I didn't know. And she was funny and warm and dirty. She always had a little bit of a, she kept her edge, whatever religious conversions or spiritual transformations or name changes. She was always an Irish gal with a wit. It's like she had the gift of gab. And that interview, I, I was, sometimes you look back, Brian, when you're as old as me, you're young, you'll look back and you'll, maybe there'll be one or two you think that wasn't that good. But I look back at it and I was grateful to have known, met her and spent a little time with her. But also I was grateful I didn't write as bad a piece as I would fear I would have written. It was touching to realize from the piece that she actually really appreciated being voted Artist of the Year by Rolling Stone readers. She said that meant to her, more to her than any Grammy. Oh yeah, I had, I've been reawoken to her award show hatred which now that I am spend a lot of my life around award shows, I can't formally endorse it. But I definitely love that she cared about Rolling Stone's critic writer's poll, critic's poll so much and reader's poll. The thing is, she was a real artist. That's why I hate any sort of suggestion like that she was a one-hit wonder or something, like whatever became of. She is not that. As you said, that first album was a hit. It was a indie, it was an indie hit. In the early days of indie hits, there were multiple songs we all heard. I think, I remember, I think I went to one of her unplugged, she was on and unplugged, I believe, just doing, was it the moped? Like, it was Jules Shear, might have, it might have been one of the very early ones where Jules Shear did it, and it was multiple artists. But I think, I remember, I think that might have been one of the first times I saw her like performing live, and it was, she was so great. She was such a compelling performer. And there's a moment when, you talk about how her music is so much more sophisticated than what's going on in the pop charts, so much more complex and demanding than the standard stuff heard on the radio these days. And this is something I just spoke with Shirley Manson for this same episode. And we were, I think, both realizing this kind of obvious fact about Sinead. She presaged the 90s in so many ways that what she said to you was, people don't want to hear what's on the fucking radio. People are screaming out for something more. And, and wow. I'm, and that's like just right before Nirvana, Pearl Jam, whole a million things that were going to change the face of the 90s. And there she was before that, both her success and what she was saying presaged all that. 100%. And actually, I was thinking about that. It's funny you mentioned Shirley, but like I was thinking about some of the women who I would later get to cover and that you, I'm sure, have, like Alanis. I think I wrote the first feature on Alanis. And I had not, I think because she's such a singular entity and her journey, her there's no career path quite like hers or life story quite like hers i didn't i don't think she even gets the full credit for what an influence she was on some of the greatest women that would follow like in the next five years like shirley manson like alanis and it's funny like the women ahead of her who were great patty smith i think of the people who said maybe if the baton and we're only talking about women which is probably not right I was thinking after she, when I heard that she passed, she had such a rough go of it in the public eye where like the nearest artist in a way before her to me was like Patti Smith, who I love. And it's, I think her just 
her engagement in the pop culture. So in a weird way, she set the stage for all those women that we're talking about. But I think she also, her life, unfortunately for her, had it was ahead of the reality TV craze because it was like her story got out, her fame got ahead of her career, which was ridiculous because her music was enough to suggest a Joni Mitchell, Patti Smith, life in music route. And yet I don't think she got in America. She didn't get that. I think it's her fame usurped her brilliant talent for too many people. And that's why you go to her essentials on iTunes or whatever. It's remarkable. There's it's not it's a body of work. And there's things I admit, I confess, I'd missed her version of All Apologies from like Universal Mother. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so great. How did I so good miss this? You were at the the Dylan tribute at Madison Square Garden, and what a night that was. There was so much legendary music that night, and Sinead was supposed to be part of it. She was going to do I Believe in You, and you can actually hear the rehearsal, thankfully, was recorded. I believe in you, even through the tears and the so we actually can hear what that would have been like. But instead, and it's important to put this in context, this was, what, a week after she went on Saturday Night Live? And it was in the full context of, I think now, this tremendously different perception of what she did and why. At the time, I think it was just seen as pure madness. I don't even think people even understood what she was trying to protest. And so was there any hint beforehand that it was, were people being like, oh my God, Sinead's going to perform? Was that whispered about before it happened? I had such a unique vantage point on it because I actually covered the event for Rolling Stone. I ended up writing the liner notes for the record. I think I was around the whole day, but weirdly my day began with, I think I had to go over to get my tickets at the Riga Royal. I think it was in it's that hotel that was then the Riga Royal. I think that's where you're, you went to the publicist and begged for your good seats and your passes. And as I walked in, Sinead was sitting by herself in the lobby talking to herself. And I'll never forget it because it was it was a window into where she was at. And I think it was obviously it had been a traumatic, intense week for her. But that is a very strong memory. I was like, I said something to someone with the concert, like, is Sinead okay? Because she was literally just having a full conversation with herself in the lobby. And I didn't interrupt. I didn't go say hello or anything like that. But I remember very, so she was going through things. It was, and uh, then I remember going to the rehearsals. I think I was around the whole day. I remember hanging out because Howie, the Heartbreakers were there and Howie Epstein and Tom, I'd already gotten to know and Howie was a good friend. So I was hanging with the Heartbreakers and I think I saw her do I, I Believe in You, which I thought she did an amazing version of because that's one of my favorite songs from Slow Train Coming, one of my favorite Dylan records. And I think it would have been beautiful. But And my strong memory, I, at the actual moment, where she got, as it, it goes down in history, she was booed off. But my memory is I was on the side of the stage with Howie Epstein and Chris Christopherson was standing like three feet away from us. But Howie and I were talking. And so when she started, when she walked out, there was a, my memory is there was a fair mix of cheers. And then in New York, there's, you don't hang out waiting don't keep the crowd in New York waiting even a few seconds because then you'll likely get a few. If it's not booze, it's like Bruce's. And even though Bruce is not going to be at that show. But I do remember we're standing on the side of the stage. 
And it was a mixed, it, it wasn't like she was being shattered off the stage initially, but I think she's, her instinct, which I think was her instinct as an artist always, was she stared fear in the face, she stared controversy in the face, she just didn't back down, and never would, and I think that she might have, it was like a provocative reaction, and the booze started, she I think gave way to the booze, and that was, that's when it all turned badly, went badly. But then I do remember when she finally walked off the stage, it was a shocking moment. And Howie and I, being not the coolest guys on earth, but Chris Christopherson was the coolest guy on earth, he immediately came over. We're standing, I think, 10 feet away. And he started, he held her, hugged her, comforted her. It was one of the most loving, sweet things I ever saw. And it made me, it made me love Chris Christopherson forever. And he, she was not on stage. I think this might have, at least this is my memory of it. She didn't show quite how upset she was. But when Chris hugged her, she was shaking. Like, because this had been, it was a traumatic week turning much worse. And yeah, in retrospect, I think she, for being who she was as an artist, she probably took a lot of shit she didn't deserve because she just... She didn't play any game. She, from the shaved to the Saturday Night Live appearance to that day, she just, she was not backing down. And that's probably what made her such a significant artist. I got a sense that she was having mental health issues from that moment at in the lobby of the hotel. And I later, I would think she came out as being bipolar and my mom yeah. was bipolar. And I mm. always, my heart goes out to her always went out to her but i think in a certain way it's hard she just she was open in so many ways that she probably didn't get the support she deserved she didn't get defended the way she should have been and she didn't get the quite the career respect she should have had i wish i wish there had been a time in the last 20 years where she could have and i don't it probably would have been something she wouldn't have wanted to do like a moment where she and alanis did a song on the grammys or she and shirley manson i would love to have seen that moment the her and prince being entwined in history i think it's so odd because it is one of the greatest performances ever yes but it's not even her greatest performance i just hope obviously in this streaming era in this sort of age when things are rediscovered it's like she has a there's a body of work that i'm not saying this hey kids you should rediscover this i rediscovered it last night i'm saying there's a lot that to go back to and a lot of stuff i missed in the later years it just when she did her covers record after the sort of with phil ramone and she does like a loretta lynn relatively obscure gem but she does it like jazzy with jazz strings yes i listened to success has made a failure of our home and i thought she just gave success the biggest fuck you and i spend all my evenings all alone because i think it wasn't what she wanted i think she wanted to make music i think she wanted to like whatever issues she was working out with her parents and her childhood she wanted to express herself she did not want to be successful on the grandest scale and i think that's one of the re i sense just my sense was 
with Prince and U2, like she could battle people who played the game more than she did. And that would be include everyone played the game more than she <laughs> yeah. did. I think the most she ever played the game was sitting down with a jerk like me from Rolling Stone at a source <laughs> restaurant. Yeah. And then you never, the last time, so the last time you were physically next to her was while watching Chris Christopherson, while watching Chris Christopherson legendarily embrace her. And then you had, you never saw her again, is what you're saying. Oh. That was, and I always felt Howie Epstein ended up being a groomsman at my wedding and a good friend. And we often would talk about that. Like we were, we could have started a group hug, but we didn't have the presence of Chris. We weren't as cool as Chris Christopherson, which is a very large group also. he Also, she probably didn't want a hug from me, but she might be. I think everyone wants a hug. I would have liked a hug from Chris Christopherson. Actually, I think I got one later, but that's a different story. That's a crazy thing to be right next to. That's really wild. It was definitely one of my more zealot moments. I wish I would be organized like other writers in Rolling Stone if I could find the audio tape. She was like defending herself with Sinatra and Prince and stuff like that. But it was so quietly stated. She told the truth in whispers and then she sang the truth in this amazing voice. I had really forgotten. Everyone knows nothing compares to you as a great vocal. By the way, it's not a good song in any other version. It's not great by the family or it's not even great by Prince. Oh, that's the other thing. And maybe Shirley Manson discussed this with you. Like the arrangements, the productions on some of that work was so interesting and artful. And in some ways she was, I think, so ahead of the curve on hip-hop, getting a little bit of the texture of hip-hop. She would fire like her first producer. I think she was one of those artists who had very strong feelings about everything. And as a result, the records really reflect so much of her and her genius. She was way ahead of the curve, and I think her life was a series of curves in which I guess no one can be shocked that she's gone, but I, she was, she'd weathered so much. I still go back I feel lucky that I got to talk to her for Rolling Stone. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.